0: Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. Before we go any further... I must salute Jeff Stewart, who does a terrific show every Wednesday morning here on WMNF. But today, he truly outdid himself with a special spotlighting girl groups and garage bands across the globe. If you didn't hear it, do yourself a favor. Listen on the archives at WMNF.org. Again, it's uh, from 6 a.m. to 9, of course, with Jeff Stewart, The Morning Show. As I said to Jeff afterwards, the show was an absolute tour de force, an amazing way to celebrate Women's History Month. So check it out if you weren't lucky enough to hear it live. All right. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Dr. Caitlin O'Connell, a noted scientist who specialized for much of her career in studying elephants and their communication. She's also the author of several books, including eight on elephants. Her new book, Wild Rituals, 10 Lessons Animals Can Teach Us About Connections, Community, and Ourselves explores the way humans engage in customs and practices that echo or duplicate some fundamental ones displayed by animals. And while some of the ten rituals O'Connell focuses on are ones you might anticipate, like courtship and grieving, some of the others are less expected, such as gift-giving, unspoken rituals, and travel and migration. The book unfolds into a distinctive blend of research findings, stellar scientific writing, and bits of autobiography recounting her experiences in the African savannah amidst elephants and lions in the Hawaiian waters among Humpback whales, an array of other animals, and other areas. We'll discuss some specific rituals as practiced by specific animals, very much including human animals, and other aspects of the new book *Wild Rituals*. When I speak with Dr. Caitlin O'Connell in a few moments here on *Talking Animals* on WMNF. Later in the program, I'll speak with Aubrey Walsh, co-founder with her brother Kale of the Herbivorous Butcher, the country's first vegan butcher shop that minneapolis business has been flourishing during the pandemic and in a classic david and goliath confrontation the waltz siblings vanquished no less a corporate behemoth than nestle who had sought to trademark phrases that included the words vegan butcher now comes news that the waltz are launching a new enterprise herbie butchers fried chicken which will serve vegan fried chicken and all the fixings we'll find out more when i speak with aubrey waltz later in the show right now though let's discuss the rituals animal rituals human rituals Where That Twain Meets, and more with Dr. O'Connell. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Dr. Caitlin O'Connell back on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Dr. O'Connell. Good morning, Duncan. Thanks for having me. Uh, Thanks for uh, coming back and joining us this morning on Talking House. I really enjoyed the book and and really want to discuss it with you. I mean, rituals are just fascinating inherently and, of course, can be powerful cultural markers. But you're clearly someone with so many interests and talents, a a true uh, Renaissance woman, if I can say that. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't spend a few moments on some of those enthusiasms. Of course, I think you first, and, uh, you first and foremost, and of course, last time you are on the show a few years ago, we talked about how you spent a number of years studying elephant communication. For those listening who may not have heard our conversation on the show about five years ago, maybe you could just briefly describe your work in this area.
1: Oh, sure. Um, I have a field site in Namibia, um, the south, uh, southwest coast of southern Africa uh, in Atasha National Park. And I every June and July go into the field and monitor an elephant society there That uh, it's kind of like being an anthropologist and watching another culture, going back and visiting every year and seeing the new additions to the families and the new tiffs that are going on or mended uh, uh, tiffs between adversaries. And it's, it's just a, a really incredible experience. And, and elephants are so much like us that it was really fun to put this book together to show all of these different animal rituals and how similar other animal rituals are to
0: our own. Yeah, and of course, one of the things that's uh, notable about this book, if people do know you as an elephant uh, kind of scientist in particular, is that elephants, of course, figure into the book, but there are a number of other animals uh, depending on the ritual that are also focused on along the way, so we'll get into more of that in a sec, but just a couple other things before we get into the book. Let's talk a, a little bit about a detour you made from elephant communication into the tech world, a phenomenon was thinking this sort of ties into a NASA project. Can you give us a little bit of information about that?
1: Oh, sure. Um, when I was a postdoc at Stanford, I was studying acoustic stress and mechanical stress on cells and had a, a stint in the biotech world where we looked at the effect of microgravity on cells and um, to try and understand how genes turn on under certain circumstances that are difficult to create or simulate in uh, gravity conditions. Uh, as it turns out, um, stem cells may differentiate quicker in microgravity and cancer cells uh do um, express differently in microgravity, which gives you more information about how cancer cells operate. And so I we designed a uh, um, space lab and uh, experiments to really challenge these kinds of microgravity condition questions.
0: Wow. So I'm not sure I have the exact grasp of the timeline. So was that recent? Was it, was it
1: pretty recent? I was the director of life sciences for this um for my brother's company actually. I know you have another brother sister <laughs> on the show later. Yeah. Um and uh yeah, I I I did that Kind of as a, a parallel in parallel to running my nonprofit with the elephant research at a time where fundraising was difficult, and this was an opportunity to really explore um, cellular expression in a different way, which uh, all then fed into my elephant research by being able to spend more time on it. And now I am um, I have an I, I. I got an NIH. Uh, National Institute of Health Mid-Career Transition Award, which allowed me to transition back into academia and focus on the elephant ear, which I had been doing in the past. And I'm looking at how sensitive the the elephant ear is to bone conduction and hoping to inform um, new bone conduction hearing aids to make them better. Uh, Bone conduction hearing aids exist but they're not as good as they should be considering how how well we can um how sensitive we are to bone conduction but elephants are two orders of magnitude more sensitive than we are so I'm studying the middle ear of the elephant at Harvard Medical School um, and hoping to find some answers there.
0: Wow. So the bone conduction of the elephant is serving as a model for how you can improve the human hearing or hearing, I guess, AIDS, right? Yeah, hearing aids, yeah. Yeah, wow, that's that's really interesting. And and how far into that would you say you are? I mean, have you been able to make some improvements, tangible improvements, on the human hearing aids thus far, or are you still kind of heading in that direction?
1: No, we're heading in that direction. It takes, uh, you know, I've been doing this now for two years, and, um, you know, one of the structural elements of the elephant middle ear is that it is, um, much denser, much larger uh, That contributes the, the weight of the ossicles Contributes to uh, better bone conduction But it doesn't explain all of it And so we're trying to understand The 3D motion using 3D laser vibrometry And seeing how much energy goes into the cochlea And there's, there's uh, elaborate <laughs> wow. uh, Laboratory experiments That we're doing with the Cataveric uh, specimens that were donated from zoo mortality.
0: This sounds really, really interesting. And it sounds like you're, uh, like, like you say, you're heading in that direction, but you sound like you're really making some important strides.
1: Yeah, so that's what I do in the lab during the year. And then uh, in the summer, I spend time thinking about ritual and other social animals and uh, all the animals that come into our field site um, giraffes. Zebra, elephants, lions, rhinos, and um, it's really a privilege to be able to watch their worlds go by and and how important ritual is to their lives and really how ritual provides uh, a kind of rules for the society to, to, to keep the peace, so to speak especially
0: yeah. in, in greeting rituals. Yeah, no, I, w- I want to dive into the book in one set, but one more thing, just because I think it's now people have heard you describe the, the work on the bone conduction and the hearing and some of the other things that you've described. Another facet of what I've called your uh, Renaissance Woman, Dedication to Multiple Interests and Pursuits, is that you've written a number of books that are serious, research-oriented, and you've taught scientific writing, but you've also written fiction, right? Novels that are kind of set in the bush and drawing your years living and studying in Africa. So I think that's kind of unusual for a PhD scientist with ties to Harvard and Stanford, is it not?
1: Well, yeah, it is a little unconventional. Um, it, It really stems from me wanting to tell stories about what it's like for people to live with elephants and what it's like on the ground trying to conserve elephants. And I thought these, stories would be best told fictionalized um i was inspired by i was working for the Namibian government um as a, a scientist and my boss was chasing the town doctor in this remote little area uh, in the Zambezi region of Namibia my my boss was chasing the town doctor who was smuggling ivory and it was it was it was such a story that it just had to be told yeah and i, I <laughs> I um, I got really excited about writing it, and I love the journey of writing fiction. I think it it helps one write better nonfiction, and vice versa. Each informs the other, and I I feel like I've become a better writer for it.
0: Yeah, no, I'm sure one one form of narrative kind of really supports another as you kind of sharpen your skills in either either side. So uh, that sounds yeah. Wrong. So this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Dr. Caitlin O'Connell, noted elephant scientist and author of several books. Most recently, Wild Rituals, 10 Lessons Animals Can Teach Us About Connection, Community, and Ourselves. If you'd like to ask Dr. O'Connell a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663. Email DJ at text 813-433-0885. So... How exactly did Wild Rituals come about? What was the impetus for writing the book?
1: Um, Well, after writing several books about elephants and the the thriller about the ivory trade called Ivory Ghost that we were just talking about, Mm -hmm. this book was an opportunity to pull together a number of different experiences that I've had in the wild with a number of different animals. So I've mostly written about elephants, but this, you know, I've, done research in other areas, as we talked about before, and one of the um, two different things that I had done was uh, study flamingos, courtship behavior in flamingos, and uh, coral reef restoration. And all that time underwater also gave me the opportunity to see how animals have rituals underwater in the ocean, and I wanted to be able to write a book that pulled together all of these different social animals and their rituals and draw the parallels to our own rituals.
0: Yeah, because it wasn't just a matter of pointing to rituals that both humans and animals engage in, but sort of executing a a deeper premise, right? I mean, which the, the subtitle, I guess, kind of hints at.
1: Yes, I mean, having almost finished this book in the middle of a pandemic really highlighted the importance, you know, I, I I started writing this book before March of, of last year. And um, it, it, the, I think the pandemic has made people realize things that they hadn't paid attention to before. The importance of being in person and seeing one another in person, the importance of touching, the importance of shaking hands, smiling at each other, which we haven't been able to do because we're wearing masks to keep each other safe. And just these very basic uh, rituals that we take for granted, I think we're now becoming more aware of the importance because we've lost them.
0: Yeah, the deprivation, I think, is especially after a year plus, is I think really gotten to people. And one of the things that, among other of the rituals that you, of course, talk about in the book, is, is grieving. And the pandemic really uh, has clearly brought a great deal more grieving. And as you've kind of noted a moment ago, really altered the kind of grieving that's possible. I mean, people often can't attend uh, conventional funerals or other services. And just the way that that is hampered mourning and grieving and and often in some cases people's recovery that those things help usually cultivate.
1: Yes. I mean not being able to come together and grieve and mourn the loss of a loved one has just made things so much worse and and made us feel so much more isolated And, and to begin with in western societies we already aren't the best grievers. We tend to shut grief down and not Realize that moving through grief and allowing ourselves to feel grief is part of the healing process. And you know, I talk about that culturally how different um, grieving rituals have come about, and really the whole idea of community coming and bringing food and spending several days over a week is to allow that time to see different people, not be overwhelmed, and and take the time to think about that person. And the loss and the celebrating that person's life its just it's so just even more devastating that we haven't been able to do that in person. And um, I'm hoping that that one positive thing from the pandemic is to just make us realize how important these rituals are that we weren't able to engage in and how much more conscious and mindful we'll be about engaging in those rituals in the future.
0: Yeah, I'd like to think so because I think uh, something you mentioned a moment ago is is really true and something I was hoping to explore a bit further with you is that I think generally most of us are not really great at grieving. I mean, partly is. Sometimes your first experience with loss is, of course, your first experience with loss. So you don't have really much to draw on. And then if you related to that, don't understand the rituals or can't participate in them and things that would help you heal better. Sometimes people remain kind of arrested in that grief and have a hard time shaking it. Sometimes just no matter how much time goes by because of those things, they're still struggling mightily. And it's it's pretty profound
1: yes it is, and i I use several different animal uh grieving examples to show just to remind us how important that time is um, to spend and One of them is a, a, a story a colleague of mine shared from two captive elephants that had grown up in the wild and brought a ritual from the wild into captivity where they had to put down a matriarch uh, in captivity, and they were really concerned if this body suddenly disappeared, what would these two other elephants that were so closely bonded with her, what would they do? They really felt like they needed to give them the opportunity to grieve. So they left the matriarch in the enclosure to allow these two very closely bonded individuals to um, spend time with her. And what they did, um, they spent 24 hours rumbling and standing over her body and actually taking dirt and putting it over her body the entire time, so that by the next morning she was covered in an inch of dirt. And this was something that that uh, my colleague had never experienced before. He had experienced a number of. of death, natural death in in captivity or from disease. Um, But he had never experienced this grieving ritual. And after we discussed the kinds of different scenarios he had experienced, he realized the one difference here was that these two elephants that had this cultural um, grieving ritual had come from Mozambique. And they most likely had experienced in their past this kind of mourning ritual in order to, to help them heal And so they uh, performed this ritual in captivity, which was so fascinating, and and it just highlights how important that time is um, to be able to spend with your loved one and in together with other loved ones and really think about that person and have these, you know, we have the action of throwing some dirt on the coffin as the coffin goes down, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Um, If if one is being buried in that way, um, we have that and it's very important. But during the pandemic, we weren't even able to do that
2: in some
0: cases. Yeah. It was really interesting about those two captive elephants and i thought it was so uh, wise of those folks to provide those elephants that opportunity not knowing and certainly i don't think in any way anticipating that this is what would happen but just feeling yeah, like something yeah. could or should happen and they at least they should have the opportunity to do that
1: and yeah it was really profound and such a great thing to be able to, to do for them
0: yeah what other animals do you think we could get good guidance from for grieving? Just sort well, of. Well,
1: other examples that I use, one of them is with chimpanzees and uh, a mother who experienced the baby death. Uh, often they will carry that baby with them, and sometimes another family member will help carry it. And one of them, in, in one study, carried the baby for several months. And they, they tracked their hormone levels and showed that they had very, the group uh, surrounding that individual, they all had elevated cortisol levels, which is a sign of stress. <clears throat> Until she left the body and was able to recover, then they all um, had lower stress levels. So it just, it shows you the need to spend that time and, you know, I also talk about a study that was done in humans where it was not uh, the norm or practice for a hospital to allow parents, bereaved parents to visit with a, a stillborn baby and to be given that opportunity or at least have something that they could take away from the experience it turned out to be really important and some parents, did a study across six nations to show uh, how important this grieving process is for parents that have lost a baby. Um, so so there's things like that. There's another example that I used um, of zebra uh, at my field site where a zebra had dropped dead in the back of our camp and the whole family just stood over the body and just stood there frozen for hours and hours. And I was really taken with that. But, I mean, I knew that horses have uh, strong relationships, but to see this whole family of zebra, all the other zebra had left the field site, but this one family stayed with the body. And um, that just was another reminder to me that we're all social animals. We all have this need uh, to be with our loved ones after they pass. And and it's very important not to shut down that grieving process.
0: And another thing, if I remember correctly about that particular uh, scenario with the zebras, uh, Dr. O'Connell, is that I think the zebras gathered a little before that one yeah. zebra passed yeah. away. So it was almost, almost like some sort of anticipatory grief that they were kind of gathering and and clearly understood that this zebra was in trouble.
1: They knew that that the zebra was in trouble and they didn't want to leave its side and suddenly it just died. And this often happens, um, anthrax is, is endemic in this environment and zebra and elephants are particularly sensitive. So I have seen this happen before with a zebra, but usually they're a stallion um, by themselves uh, um, without a harem. and But this one was a very tight-knit family, and they were not going to leave this individual even after death.
0: Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And, again, it's kind of a very amateur compared to you, of course, but, you know, elephant... Guy. I mean, I was familiar with some of the, the, the grieving rituals and things that you hear and read about that they do and walking by and touching and all kinds of things, including the story you told about the two captive ones. But zebras, I just wasn't familiar with their kind of approach to grieving at all. So I thought that was really interesting. And, and again, that they did gather beforehand as if there was some kind of signal or message or something in the air that they were about to lose a family member. Yes. Yeah. Let's take a call and get someone else involved in the conversation. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Dr. O'Connell? Yes, this is Mark and Tampa. Can you hear me? Yes, I can, thanks. just talking stuff? This is Talking Animals. I'm, I'm okay, okay. De-
3: I want to talk about some animals. I want to talk about about how much she loved animals and how she tried to protect them. And about Terry Shriver and how much she loved animals, too, and how she tried to protect them. Is that all
0: right? Okay, sure. I mean, does it tie into the the conversation we're having with Dr. O'Connell about rituals and, and animal rituals? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Why don't you Why don't you pick one and we'll talk about that and then we'll, just because we want to make sure we covered a lot of ground with Dr. O'Connell in the brief time that we have her. Okay. Carrie a animal
3: so much. She picked one off the side of the wall, and it was almost dead. And she took it to the doctor. And the doctor said put it to sleep. And she said no way. And she took it home and the resident said put it to sleep. And she fed it and got it well. And then she got another animal for it so it would have a it would have a friend and have a, a playmate and have a have a of company and there were cats two cats and oh she, that's you, that's beautiful and michael sidel had him put the sleep after he collapsed and lost a conscious a, a semi-conscious state
0: yeah all right well i'm sorry about the of course the ultimate outcome of that but i appreciate the story about the two okay, cats thank you thanks so much for calling appreciate it thank you okay. Bye-bye.
1: Yeah, that, you know, that's one of the reasons I, I wrote this book was to help us realize how similar other animals are and their emotional needs to ourselves and to care more about these other animals and be more sensitive to them and deferent and to their emotional needs and, and their need for ritual. And it's a beautiful story to take care of this cat and try and help it heal I think uh, more people need to be
0: so sensitive to to animals. For sure. In fact, kind of reminds me in a way about in the introduction of the book, there's a sentence uh, that you wrote that has kind of stayed with me as as well. Each action within the ritual in and of itself isn't always meaningful. The total result is. Can you elaborate a bit on that, uh, Dr. O'Connell, if you would? Yes. You
1: know when you're engaging in a ritual, uh, whether you're greeting or whether you're in a marching band uh, playing the same instrument or music as others and wearing the same uniform, um, the action of doing the ritual is really this repetitive motion and in and of itself seems insignificant. But after you perform the ritual, you hormonally feel much more bonded to the rest of the, the group. And if it's a greeting ritual, you feel more bonded to that individual, you look them in the eye, you smile, you shake hands, and it's very disarming. And it provides that social grief. You know, sometimes we, ritual helps us when we don't actually know what to do. You all maybe come into a conference room together and don't know each other, and you don't know what is kind of awkward, but suddenly everyone starts greeting each other and starts talking, and that it's a very simple action, but it helps uh, move you to the next level in communication.
0: Yeah, and the thing is, I was you know reading through the book, and, and again, you've noted in the book, as you've noted here, that you started writing the book uh, before the pandemic, Hit, and of course, then we're working on it during the a big portion of the pandemic. And it really does seem like a good handful of other rituals. Of course, we talked about how uh, grieving is imp- really significantly compromised by the restrictions of the pandemic, but others too, right? I mean, like courtship, um, people talk about or write about to date or resume dating or start dating or all kinds of things like that or, or have just been sort of all but prevented unless oh, you, unless, you, unless you want to consider a zoom date which I'm not sure most people would count but
1: uh, well I mean that that could be the only thing you've got right and, and exactly Ver- versus
0: important. nothing yeah
1: <laughs> um you know instead of going to the co- coffee shop for your uh, match.com um, date you, you meet over Zoom and, and it's better than nothing at least you see each other and can communicate in that way but um, oh, it's been disastrous for courtship rituals, for travel rituals um, it's uh, you know, especially for certain um, members of, of generations where they're really missing these life rituals of, say, graduation or um, being on a sports team or all of these things that high school and college are so important for foundational learning and, and play rituals. Being able to get together and play together is uh, something that, that we were going to have a lot of making up to do. And I I really feel for those seniors that w- weren't able to graduate last year, weren't able to even see each other. Um, it's uh, it's been a very very difficult time, and and that all the more, um, I'm hoping afterwards that that we will really make an effort to engage in these rituals that we might not have recognized their importance in the past, but now we do realize because they've been taken from us, and we've got so much making up to do.
0: Yeah, I would like to think that there is a heightened appreciation for things like that just uh, some are more obvious than others but i think we've all had plenty of time to think about them and yeah. and so when when things do kind of get more and more back to normal whatever that uh, whenever that's going to happen uh, i do think that we'll all um you know shift our our behavior and, and embrace certain rituals maybe more heartily than we might have uh, otherwise let's get another caller in the conversation if we can hi you're on talking animals with dr o'connell yes
3: I- you know, Duncan, you mentioned that um, the zebras actually seem to have known about the uh, zebra that was dying, and they gathered prior to its death or stayed with their dog. I just wanted to tell you about personal observation I have. I have a wolf I used to have two, and I take him for a walk all the time, usually late at night on full moon. We walk through the neighborhoods and past places, and there is no way that the dogs inside see us or hear us. We're not making any noise, but they always react. So as you ever look at the idea of how they're they're communicating in some way, there's the communication that starts between animals. Has nothing to do with verbalization or speech, and it uh, has to be something, you know, um, telepathic. I guess. What did you think about that?
0: All right. Thanks uh, for your call. Um, wait, are
1: you are you talking about you're walking? What kind of animal did you say? A horse?
0: A wolf, I believe.
3: It's a reaction from dogs, uh, and and oh, people a like wolf. their dogs are in their house. They you know they were asleep when we walked by, but when we come within a certain distance, they know we're there. They start barking, you know, raise a cane, and all that kind of stuff. So.
1: Well, um, it could. I would immediately say olfaction, that they could smell. Um, Did you say you, you have
3: a tame wolf? Yeah, they're inside a closed house with, uh, with the air conditioner on you know, most of the time. Uh-huh. So we're out on a road. We're, we're not anywhere close to them at all. Who might be walking down the side of the road it always gathers a reaction from them and I've seen this kind of thing before where um, I believe the animals are actually communicating with each other without even being able to see each other
1: yes I mean my my dog amazes me at, at- how he is able to hear the tiniest sounds that I'm not even registering. Um, but it, it they have a very, very keen sense of smell. Um, so between smell and, and sound, um, and also seismic, uh, detection, uh, many animals are, are, um, very sensitive to seismic disturbances that we're not paying attention to.
3: So you don't think that animals are communicating with each other in a way other than feet or, um, and, and, and aware from from I don't know, I think it's telepathy. I'm not sure what it is. But I know it happens all the time.
1: It does and and there's usually an explanation that is either seismic, you know, vibrational, um acoustic or olfaction. Um, you know, there's been some work done on magnetic detection in mammals, which is usually thought to be something uh, that, that fish and insects do. But there's more evidence now that mammals are able to detect magnetic uh, senses. But um, telepathy, I mean, we have a hard time showing that humans have telepathy, although there's fascinating uh, evidence of it, for sure. Well,
3: there's also an actual study that was done about uh, people and their pets and how the pets knew, even when the people were coming home at the same time, that their owners were coming home before they ever got there.
1: I know, And, and, and pets are very, very sensitive to time. Uh, when you're and and habit so when my husband's going to come in the door when he's when we were in a regular routine of me working at home and him at work my my dog will stand sit in front of the front door and wait for him to come because he knows that amount of time that has passed and when he's going to come home but then there are other cases that are not easily explained by normal senses, but I don't have any scientific evidence of that.
3: Well, that that was one of the things about the experiments was they had people come home at an unexpected time and watch the animal's reaction, knowing they were coming home, and it wasn't at the same time as they always come home.
1: Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh.
3: Oh, that's that's things, fascinating.
1: Some, some now, I, I worked with a geologist who, um, a, a retired geologist, who tracked lost pet ads and was able to predict earthquakes. So the, there are some senses that we can't really register, but animals are detecting.
3: Well, and you know that big tsunami that, that happened and took out the um, uh, whole shore community and all that stuff? Yes, you know, yes. There was someone who said they, they, they their lives were saved because, they watched that all of a sudden all the animals turned and started going uphill. They all started walking away—dogs, cats, people's, uh, you know, um, uh, livestock—and they all started going away. And they, what yes. they said that's. That's, what saved that's
1: life. different. That's different than telepathy, though. That is detecting pressure differences, possibly it. magnetic yes. differences, that's
3: forcing what you're saying about their ability to see things or hear things or relax to things prior to them happening
0: because they have some sense of it. Right, or it also could be and we've got a scoot here, I'm sorry, we're just sort of running out of time, but I'm just going to add for what it's worth, that it, back to your original question about walking the wolf and, and the dogs inside the houses react. It may be not unlike just what uh, Dr. O'Connell mentioned about her own dog and what we all kind of experienced where dogs react to things that you you have no idea how they heard that or, or what triggered that reaction. So it may just be that there's something kind of a A different frequency, or some 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 sort of other element that is making, when you're walking around with that wolf, uh, have that reaction, trigger that reaction in those dogs. But we do we do need to scoop. But I really appreciate your question and your time. Thank you so much.
3: Thanks for great work, Duncan.
0: Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot.
3: Thanks for the
0: question. So uh, we did have a, a caller holding. I'm sorry, we uh, had them hold probably a little bit too long. So we're sort of in our final moments, uh, Dr. O'Connell. But the question involving the wolf remind me one of the things you talk about is, is in Yellowstone the conflict between ranchers and wolves, and saying I think many just don't you know wish to have wolves as neighbors, and that kind of put me in the mind of a uh, of this horrible. Uh, wolf hunt that uh, happened in wisconsin uh last week or actually the week Mm -hmm. before at this point and it just feels like uh sometimes wolves are really treated as targets in the literal and uh, figurative sense
1: yeah it's, it's just like me having worked with elephants uh in and around farms people love elephants but they don't want them eating all of their food and it's a real um it's a real problem, and you know I don't blame those ranchers. You know, if you're a sheep farmer, you obviously don't want wolves in the area, and it's a it's a real dilemma, conservation dilemma, and you know it's it's up to us to make the choice of do we designate area for these animals so that they can coexist with us. Um, the the answer shouldn't be that we shouldn't have them but we have to come up with solutions uh that to allow animals to coexist with us
0: and so let me ask you this dr o'connell uh, as you were um, working on the book and writing the book working on these various rituals which one of those would you say ended up kind of changing your perspective the most
1: well uh it it was a real interesting journey to go through all of these rituals, and I think spending time thinking about how other animals grieve even more than I had before—that was really deeply moving to me. Um, but also the rituals of renewal and and the kinds of things that humans have done historically to pay attention to the passing of time, keeping a journal through the spring and watching birds lay their eggs, and I did that, you know, nesting. I did that in my own backyard because we couldn't go anywhere in the pandemic, and I really had this amazing time of watching the Orioles uh, stripping palm fronds and making nests and watching the male guard the nest and all of these different things that happen in nature. When we're in tune to them, we, it actually makes us more healthy. It makes us more mindful and aware of our own actions and our own thoughts and how, how we'd like to pass. and not look back and have regret. And I really appreciated being able to think about that during that Rituals of Renewal journey.
0: Once again, animals can teach us some, uh, some important lessons. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, and uh, by the way, I just, uh, because it was almost on a casual aside that you were describing your house in Africa, and uh, you made some sort of just passing comment about living amongst black mambas that that if they'd come into the house, of course, you guys would have been gone. And uh, I just love the the casual nature of that. Uh, Just uh, Oh, by the way, black mambas kind of hung out just outside the door. So. (laughs)
1: Yes, they they are very aggressive snakes. I do love snakes, but black mambas are...
0: That's where you draw the line, probably, right? Yeah, Yeah.
1: they're so dangerous. Yeah. (laughs) But, I mean, we had one come into our camp, and we noosed it and drove it away and did not kill it, which the rangers were really
2: amazed at.
0: Oh, wow. All right, well, that's uh, that's impressive as well. So, Dr. O'Connell, thank you so much. We've been speaking with Dr. Caitlin O'Connell. Her new book is Wild Rituals, 10 Lessons Animals Can Teach Us About Connection, Community, and Ourselves. Really interesting as I think hopefully we've given a, a bit of a flavor for in our conversation and you can get uh, get Wild Rituals wherever you wherever you get your books. So uh, Dr. O'Connell, thanks again for joining us today on Talking Animals.
1: Well, thanks, Duncan. It was great to talk to
0: you. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye now.
1: Bye-bye.
0: In a moment, I'll speak with Aubrey Walsh of the Herbivorous Butcher, which, based in Minneapolis, stands the country's first vegan butcher shop. They just announced plans to establish a new offshoot business, Herbie Butcher's Fried Chicken, which will offer vegan fried chicken and other plant-based eats. Right now, we're going to step into the comedy corner with an old fave. Quite literally, I began playing this piece in the earliest years of Talking Animals and somehow kind of forgot about it for a few years, but it's back. This is Paul F. Tompkins with a piece called Alternative Pet in today's comedy corner on Talking
4: Animals on WMNF. People who have their alternative pets on their person it's People walking around with animals on their body See a guy who's got an iguana hanging out up there on his shoulder See another person with a crazy cockatiel Just hanging out And I guess you're supposed to have some reaction to these people You know, I guess what they want you to say is something like Well, pardon me, sir Is that a bird on your shoulder? Well, you must be one fascinating individual your personality is not at all manufactured I say, what if we were to exchange addresses and became pen pals? That way I could collect your letters in a bound volume entitled My Correspondence Were the Most Interesting Person Alive They're Working hard for you That's great I am. Fr- I mean, you can have any animal that you want, you know, because we have dominion over the beasts of the fields and all, you know, but here's the thing. Even animals need some alone time, okay? How about that, you know? Maybe the lizard would like to sit at home, play on the rock for a while, you know? Maybe the bird would like to play with the bell, look in the mirror for a little bit. Maybe they don't have to come with you on all your jackass errands. How about that? Leave them alone for a minute. Come on, Cecil, we're going
0: down to the banks. So everybody can see your crazy eyes. Woo! <laughs> that was Paul F. Tompkins in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called Alternative Pets taken from his album. Impersonal. Not able to reach thus far, Aubrey Walsh, but we're going to try again, and we'll be right back with you at Talking Animals on WMNF. Okay, we found Aubrey. It's all good. Aubrey is the co-founder of the Minneapolis-based Herbivorous Butcher, the country's first vegan butcher shop, which just announced plans to launch Herbie Butcher's Fried Chicken, a vegan fried chicken eatery. This is Aubrey Walsh on Talking Animals on WF. Good morning, Aubrey. How's
2: it going? Thanks for having me.
0: You bet. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. So. Let's start with a brief overview, if, if you would, of the Herbivorous Butcher. What is it? When did you and your brother launch it? What inspired it in the, and so on?
2: Yeah, you know, um, Herbivorous Butcher, we're a vegan butcher shop based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We started in 2014 at the Minneapolis Farmer's Market and opened our um, brick-and-mortar butcher shop uh, in 2016. And uh, the Herbivorous Butcher was just born out of sheer hunger and love for animals and the environment, and um, every day we fig- you know, we try to figure out a different way to get people to eat more plant-based.
0: And I think it's going pretty well. Like if I'm not mistaken, even during the pandemic, you guys have been going well, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. If, I mean, just like every other business, we were absolutely terrified at the get-go. But our supporters and the community around us really came out and um, kept us going, kept our staff here. so we're we're really pleased, and we really saw an uptick in people that were curious about a plant-based diet as the pandemic. Got further, you know?
0: Yeah. So let's say that I came by today, which would take some impressive travel, but let's just say that I did (laughs) and said, Hey, I'd like your best lunch, please. What would you hand me?
2: You know, I think I would hand you our Italian cold cut sandwich. Okay. Um, That's a sandwich we've had since our uh, first year in business. And uh, it was on, we were on diners, drive ins, and dives with that sandwich. And it's got, A lot of our products on it, it's got pepperoni, capicola, pastrami, and our house-made mozzarella. So it has a wide variety. You can try a whole bunch of things at one time, and you're going to eat it, and you're not going to miss the animal products
0: at all. Right, and we should note that you guys, with your various offerings and and various now operations, at least one pending... You don't go to the trouble of saying, hey, it's vegan this, it's vegan that. I mean, that's kind of the implication that's sort of understood. So with every ingredient or or description of the sandwich or whatever, you don't necessarily Mm -hmm. repeat that, even though that's fundamentally what the case is.
2: Yeah, we we typically say it just because, our name's got Butcher Shop in it, or right. our name will have fried chicken in it. That sure. we just like to make sure people know, because we do have people that come in, believe it or not, that don't know what herbivorous eats.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, all right. Um, so now I want to get into the fried chicken thing in a sec, but uh, even though we're running a tad bit behind, um, I do want to be sure to at least briefly address the legal skirmish you had with Nestle, which is, I think it's safe to say, a pretty widely loathed corporate entity. And this whole David and Goliath battle that you guys uh, got into is, is I think, a classic Exhibit A of why they're wildly loathed. So maybe just give us a super succinct summary of kind of what happened and and what the outcome was.
2: Yeah. uh, When we first got started, we had a really good team behind us that suggested we trademark our main terms. Vegan Butcher, because we were the first, had not yet been trademarked. And so we decided to do it. It sat in the trademark office for quite a while, not getting touched. Uh, Finally, the trademark office replied and said, hey, this is too descriptive. We're not going to um, push this through. And so we accepted that and thought, it's too descriptive. That's great. That means vegan butchers are getting out there. And um, so a couple weeks later, our trademark lawyer had just checked in on it again, and it looked like uh, Sweet Earth Foods, which is owned by Nestle, had come in, applied for it, and they were getting fast-tracked to getting it approved. So we went in, opposed it, and kind of went through all the little legal battles that you have to for about a year and a half, two years, it took.
0: Yeah, but I mean, it was a, a classic, as I say, David and Goliath thing. I mean, you guys were cool and, and starting to flourish operation, but I mean, Nestle is Nestle. So it just seemed like, oh, my God, what, what's going on with these guys? But I mean, the thing is, you vanquished them right? Ultimately. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yes, we did. And uh, it was kind of unexpected, to be honest. But um, as with a lot of things, our community got behind us and they got out there and they spoke their minds. But, you know, we did start it and it, it, it's something that either we should have or nobody should have. And we were able to get it. And, and Nestle ended up dropping it at the end of uh, last year. And we just got the paperwork a few weeks ago. And so um, we haven't talked to our lawyers since, but we're excited and happy.
0: Yeah. Okay. So now we're, we're we're we are racing against the clock a little bit, but let's talk briefly about Herbie Butcher's Fried Chicken. You just recently announced that you'd, you guys would be launching that uh, operation, as sort of an eatery serving vegan fried chicken and other eats. Now all, everything is based so far in Minneapolis, but I should hasten to add that back to the butcher shop, people can order and have things shipped elsewhere, right?
2: Yep, yeah, we ship nationwide, all fifty states and Puerto Rico, and you can get all of almost all of our products. And we also release specials that we'll release in our brick and mortar butcher shop online for people to order from all over the United States.
0: Yeah, and so Herbie Butcher's fried chicken, which is not yet open but is uh, pending, uh, that'll be in Minneapolis too as well. But do you do you have kind of a grand plan that you would re- share with us about like opening other locations maybe outside of Minneapolis?
2: Yeah, yep. That's always been kind of part of the plan. Mm-hmm. Um, the butcher shop is something that is really special to us and that people uh, here in Minneapolis have built. And so uh, for now, we're going to keep Herbivorous Butcher the butcher shop in Minneapolis. But we're hoping to expand uh, Herbie Butcher's Fried Chicken, possibly, and a few other um, fast, casual places. So, Oh, wow. We're getting there. So
0: there's yeah. more announcements even to come of different operations beyond the two that we know about?
2: Yep, we have a grand plan.
0: Okay, can you can you uh, can we get a sneak preview, or is it too soon?
2: It's too soon to say, but you're def- people will definitely be eating more than just fried chicken.
0: Okay, very cool. All right, yeah. so you guys have a heavy presence on social media. So again, it's the herbivorous butcher, and it's also Herbie Butcher's Fried Chicken to get a running start on the, on the operation. That's not yet open, but it's coming soon. As are other things, apparently. Wink, wink. So we'll kind of stay mm-hmm. tuned for further announcements. So, Aubrey, thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Animals, and good luck with all your various ventures. Of
2: course. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good day.
0: All right, you too. Thanks. Bye. All right, we have just about to of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Rob Lorai is up after NPR News with radioactivity, and I'll be back next Wednesday with another edition of the show on 88.5 FM, WMNF, and WMNF.org. NPR news is coming up shortly. Again, Rob, after that, we'll see you next week on Talking Animals.